Hebrews chapter 11 is one of the more famous chapters in all of the Bible. It's known as the Hall of Faith, as it is an homage to the faithful saints of ages past, the saints of the Old Testament, men who in spite of what was seen, trusted God to fulfill his unseen promise. And by their faith, they found acceptance with God and they received the reward of eternal life. It's a stirring chapter. And the author uses it to great effect as he then calls his church to likewise persevere in faith in God's unseen promise. So Hebrews chapter 12 begins, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, all of those saints mentioned in chapter 11... Let us also, like they did, lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God." In this great hall of faith of Hebrews chapter 11, you will find Abel, who by faith offered a better sacrifice than Cain and was commended as righteous. You will find Noah, who by faith believed the threat of God's judgment that was coming upon the world and built an ark and saved his family and became an heir of the righteousness that is by faith. You'll find Abraham who believed God's promise and lived as a stranger in exile as he awaited his inheritance in the city of God. You'll find Isaac and Jacob and Joseph who likewise believed God's promise, built their lives upon God's covenant and received an inheritance among the people of God. You'll find Moses who by faith considered the reproach of Christ of greater wealth than all the treasures of Egypt and received God's reward. You'll find the judges, Barak and Samson and Jephthah. You'll find David and Samuel and the prophets. But you will find in Hebrews chapter 11 only one non-Israelite and only one woman who is mentioned by name. Hebrews 11.31, by faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Only one non-Israelite, who is also the only woman in Hebrews chapter 11 that is commended for, by, for her faith, is Rahab whose story we're going to unfold today in Joshua chapter 2. This morning we're going to look at the story of how Rahab became the woman of faith, the woman of faith, and thereby received an inheritance among the saints of God. And she will serve as an example of how those of you, those of us, who are not God's people can become God's people. How those who have no inheritance among the saints can become an heir of God. So some of you came in this morning like Rahab. Now, by that, I do not mean you came from prostitution, although stranger things have happened. Just a few weeks ago, I heard a testimony in person from a woman who was saved out of prostitution through Freeway Ministries in Springfield. 
Rather, what I mean this morning by saying that you come in the same position as Rahab is that you are a stranger to God. You're a stranger to his people. You're a stranger to his promise. You don't belong yet. You're not one of us yet. Your life is one of sin and of shame. Your home is in the world. And this morning, by the authority of the word of God in Joshua chapter 2, I declare to you that you can be saved from the judgment that is coming upon the world. You can become a part of the children of promise. You can become one of the saints of God. You can become an heir of eternal life. And I'm going to show you how. By showing you how Rahab did it. First, however, let's establish the background of this text. If you had been reading straight through the story of Israel from Exodus all the way through Numbers, you're likely sitting on the edge of your seat right now as we come to the narrative at the beginning of Joshua chapter 2. Because Israel has been in this position before on the border of the promised land. Forty years earlier at a place called Kadesh Barnea in Numbers 13 and 14. And at that time, Moses sent out 12 spies to go and to scout out the land. And for 40 days, they traveled throughout the land of Canaan, through the length and the breadth of the land. And when they returned, they reported to the congregation of Israel that the land is indeed a good land. It's flowing with milk and honey. However, they said, the people who dwell in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. We are not able to go up against the people. For they are stronger and mightier than we are. You know what they were saying, don't you? Our God is not able to defeat these people and fulfill his promise. Only Joshua and Caleb, two of the twelve spies, dissented from the majority opinion. They said, let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. The land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. And if the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into the land and he will give it to us. A land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land for they are as bread for us. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. So do not fear them. But fear and unbelief won out. Among that generation of Israel. And the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt. Or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? God had had stretched out his hand and held back the waters of the Red Sea. But the people of Jericho are too strong. It was only by the intercession of Moses that Israel was spared from total destruction at the hand of God. But God condemned Israel to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until that faithless generation had perished without inheriting the land. Well, now in Joshua chapter 2, Israel is back at the border of Canaan. And once again, Joshua sends out spies to do some reconnaissance. The last time had ended in disaster. And the question the reader has when we get to Joshua chapter 2 is what's going to happen this time? 
Will faith win out? Will they inherit the land? Or would they once again give in to fear and unbelief and be cast away? So Joshua chapter 2 begins. And Joshua the son of Nun sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and they came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab, and they lodged there. Now, Jericho was not a particularly large city, but it was of strategic importance as it controlled the the major pass between east and west. It was therefore a city through which travelers and merchants would frequently pass. So it's not out of the realm of possibility that these two spies could have stayed there undetected. Lots of visitors passed through Jericho. It should also be noted, in case you were wondering, that the author in his language in the original text is very, very careful to avoid any sexual connotation in the fact that they stayed at the home of a prostitute. More than likely, what we have here is that Rahab operated a tavern or an inn that seconded as a brothel. Furthermore, they stayed the night on the roof, as we will find out, hidden amidst the stacks of flax. Verse 2, and it was told to the king of Jericho, behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab saying, bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and she had hidden them. And she said, true, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them among the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords. And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. So somehow the presence of these spies in Jericho had been detected by the officials. It was known that they had entered Rahab's home. Uh, It's not entirely surprising. If you think about it, the, the people of Jericho must have been on high alert because clearly the presence of an enormous encampment of people across the Jordan was known to the people of Jericho as were their intentions of invading the land as we'll come to find out in verses 9 through 11. Now, much ink has been spilled on whether or not it was right for Rahab to lie to the king's agents about the presence of the Israelite spies. It's an interesting ethical dilemma. Had she given them up, they would almost certainly have been killed. So human life was at stake. Furthermore, Rahab recognized that the land did not actually belong to the inhabitants of Canaan. It belonged to God. And God had deeded it, as it were, to the people of Israel. The Canaanites were like squatters on the Lord's land. So in a sense, the inhabitants of Jericho were trespassing on Israel's land. And they were living in continual rebellion to the Lord's will. So Rahab's lie was uttered in service to God and his kingdom. 
But the question that this raises is, do the ends really ever justify the means? Does threat to human life ever justify a lie? As when in our nation's own history, abolitionists hid slaves in barns when they were escaping from slavery in the South. Or when in Europe in the 1940s, Christians hid Jews who were escaping Nazi Germany in their attics and under their floorboards. Does God approve of such lies? Or what about missionaries who go into closed countries under the cover of business or travel or education? And then they conduct illegal activities like sharing the gospel and hosting Bible studies and planting underground churches. I'm not going to delve into the ethical quandary that Joshua chapter 2 seems to create for so many people. It doesn't create such a quandary for me. I really have no problem with what Rahab did. All I will point out is that the Bible never condemns Rahab's lie. Instead, it repeatedly praises Rahab's faith, which was specifically demonstrated in her hiding of the spies. And it seems to me that the New Testament writers do the same thing. James 2.25, for instance. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by her works? What works? When she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. I like the way Dale Davis, uh, excellent Old Testament commentator on the book of Joshua, describes the situation. So if Rahab's lie is, a, is an ethical problem for you, consider Dr. Davis's words. He says this, It is tragic when people snag their pants on the nail of Rahab's lie and quibble endlessly about the matter and never get around to hearing Rahab's truth, which the writer has conspired to make the center of the whole narrative. That is like a wife who proudly opens the refrigerator door to show her husband the scrumptious salad and dessert she has prepared for their dinner guests. But her husband, scarcely glancing at those delicacies, instead rubs his finger across the top of the fridge and goes off muttering that there seems to be a good bit of dust on the top of the refrigerator. He's missing the whole point. He didn't understand the wife's intention at all. His focus was all wrong. Naturally, the New Testament does not fall into this trap. It consistently stresses the faith of Rahab. So I'm just going to encourage you, don't snag your pants on the nail of Rahab's lie. That's not the focus of this text. The focus is on her faith and how she, a pagan prostitute from Jericho, became a part of the people of God. At any rate, after the soldiers departed Rahab's house and they went in pursuit of the spies, as Rahab urged, she then went up to the roof. And that sets the stage for the spectacular conversation that ensues. And in this conversation, we are able to see how a pagan prostitute became a member of the people of God and an heir of eternal life. And therefore, how you can do the same thing today. If you find yourself this morning lacking an inward confidence that you are a saint of God, that you are an heir of eternal life, that your sins are forgiven and you are a part of God's covenant people, then listen closely today because this is how you can become one. Number one, you must hear the gospel of God. 
You must hear of his great acts of redemption. You must hear of his promise and of the power which he wields on behalf of his people. Rahab had heard of the God of Israel and of all that he had done for Israel from their exodus from Egypt until now. Look at verse 8. Before the men lay down, she came to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And we have heard of what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon and Og, who you devoted to destruction. Rahab had heard of the God of Israel. She'd heard all about him. You must remember that although Israel wandered in the desert for 40 years, the distance between Egypt and Canaan was really not that great. And trade flowed back and forth across the desert between cities and kingdoms. So there must have been many stories passing through Jericho about the strange and numerous people encamped in the wilderness and about their God who led them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Their God who fed them with bread from heaven throughout their days in the wilderness and who brought forth water from the rocks that they might drink. Rahab specifically mentions one of the first and one of the final events of Israel's wilderness years. The crossing of the Red Sea in Exodus 14 and the defeat of Sihon and Og, the king of the Amorites and the king of Bashan in Numbers 21. Both of whose kingdoms lay directly to the east of Jericho across the Jordan River and both of whose kingdoms Israel had devoted to destruction, which is a word that we will deal with in the coming chapters. It means Israel had totally destroyed them. They'd left nothing alive. So it's reasonable to assume that Rahab had heard all of the other stories from those 40 years of wandering in the wilderness as well between those two events that she mentions. And the point that must be made is that she, she had heard of the God of Israel. She had heard of all that he had done to the Egyptians. She had heard of all that he had done to the Amalekites, to the Amorites, to the Midianites. She had heard of all that God had done to his enemies. And she had heard of all that God had done for his people, Israel. She had heard of the pillar of cloud and fire. She had heard of the glory that filled the tabernacle. She heard of the God of Israel who dwelt in the presence of his people. And she was aware that her gods were nothing like that. Just stone and metal. She had heard of God's promise to his people that he had granted to them the land of Canaan as an inheritance. And she knew that their God was well able to fulfill his promise. She knew that better than the 12 spies had 40 years earlier. She had heard the gospel of God, the good news of God. And it was good news for the people of Israel. It was not good news for the people of Canaan. And so Rahab decided that she wanted to be a part of the people of Israel. She wanted to be a part of this people for whom the Lord exercised all of his redemptive power. She wanted to be a part of the people whom God was for, not a part of the people whom God was against. 
Rahab had heard of the God of Israel, and so must you. If you would become a part of the people of God and an heir of eternal life, you need to hear of God's great redemptive acts, which he has performed for his church through Christ. You need to hear that God redeemed his people from the bondage of sin and death and hell through the saving work of his only begotten son. You need to hear how the son of God, the eternal, everlastingly, eternally begotten son of God, was conceived of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary and thus became man. You need to hear that this Jesus lived a life of perfect righteousness, always loving, trusting, and obeying his heavenly Father with all of his heart and soul and mind and strength. You need to hear how this Jesus manifested his unique identity and his power and glory through many miracles and how he went around all Israel and Galilee proclaiming that men should repent for the kingdom of heaven was at hand. You need to hear that he bore the sins of his people in his own body to the cross where he made atonement for them through the sacrifice of himself in order to take away their guilt and to satisfy the justice and the wrath of God which was due to them for their sins. You need to hear how he was buried and on the third day how he rose again to, to life according to the scriptures. You need to hear how he ascended into heaven and he is now seated at the right hand of the power on high and that he will come again in power and great glory to judge the living and the dead and to save his people. You need to hear how right now he mediates for his people and intercedes for them on their behalf before the father. You need to hear that one day he's going to come back at the end of the age to gather his people to himself and bring them into their, their inheritance even while he judges the wicked with unquenchable fire. Rahab had heard of the redemptive acts of God and if you would be an heir of eternal life, so must you. But hearing is not enough. All the inhabitants of Jericho heard what Rahab had heard. Right? Because she says to the spies, for we have heard, we, the people of Jericho, we've heard about you and about your God. Yet only Rahab and her family were spared Jericho's fate. This is because hearing is not enough. Hearing must be joined to faith. So if you would become an heir of eternal life, you must not only hear the gospel of God, you must believe the gospel of God. In particular, you must believe in the supremacy of God over all things. Verse 11. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heavens, in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. So Rahab's faith ex extended beyond merely the reports that were coming from the wilderness of Israel's deliverance and of Egypt's destruction in the Red Sea. And it extended beyond the reports of Israel's victories over Sihon and Og or the pillar of cloud and fire that led the people through the desert or the glory that inhabited the tabernacle or the manna from heaven or the water from the rock. Just believing those facts of the gospel did not distinguish Rahab from anyone else in Jericho. They too believed that they happened. They believed those events to be facts, which is why Rahab says their hearts melted with fear. 
The difference between Rahab's faith and the faith of the people of Jericho was that Rahab's faith took her beyond mere assent to the facts, to the underlying truths which they implied, namely that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath and that there is no other, including these fake gods that we've been worshiping all of our lives. That's what separated Rahab from the rest of the inhabitants of Jericho. Now, this was, of course, the basic confession and conviction of all Israel. Essential to the faith of Israel was the conviction that their God was not one among many gods, but rather that their God was the only God and that his supremacy was absolute and everywhere. Moses told the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 4.37, And because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power, driving out before you nations greater greater and mightier than you to bring you in and to give you their land for an inheritance as it is this day. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath and there is no other. Do those words sound familiar? It's exactly what Rahab told the spies. In other words, Rahab looked upon the same redemptive acts of God for his people Israel, the same acts that Israel themselves witnessed, and she came to the same conclusion to which Israel came, that the Lord is God and there is no other. The rest of the inhabitants of Jericho had likewise heard of the Red Sea and of the destruction of Sihon and Og and of the manna and the water and the pillar of cloud and fire. They'd heard of all of these great acts of God, yet they continued to worship their idols. They rejected the supremacy of the God of Israel, and that's why Rahab was saved and Jericho was destroyed. So if you would be saved, if you would become a part of the saints of God and an heir of eternal life, you too must believe in the supremacy of God over all things. You must believe with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength that the Lord is God and there is no other. And the Lord has exalted Jesus Christ as the only and rightful object of all saving faith. So if you would be saved... Today and everlastingly, you must believe that God has made Christ the only supreme and sufficient Savior of sinners. Jesus is Lord in the heavens above and on the earth below, and there is no other. Acts 4.12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, in other words, the only Lord, and if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So Rahab's confession of the supremacy of God was in itself carried with it, implied a rejection of all other gods. And thus she was saved. If you would be saved, you must likewise confess the supremacy of Christ and reject every other Lord and Savior in your life. Third, if you would become an heir of eternal life, you must first tremble before the judgment of God. 
You cannot embrace Christ as your only savior until you are convinced deeply and painfully of the sin and judgment from which you need to be saved. You can't embrace Christ as savior until you feel the need of salvation. Listen again to the way Rahab describes the effect which the news of God's judgment upon Egypt and the Amorites and the Amalekites had upon herself and the other inhabitants of Jericho. Verse 9. She says, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. Why? Because the Lord, the God of Israel, your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath Implication, and there is no other. So they all trembled before the impending threat of invasion. But listen, what distinguished the other inhabitants of Jericho in their trembling from Rahab's trembling is that Rahab trembled before it as the judgment of God upon them. I doubt very much whether any other inhabitant of Jericho would have put a theological perspective upon it as Rahab did. Do you notice what she said? The Lord has given you this land, and by implication, the Lord has taken it away from us. What's about to happen, she senses, is an act of God's judgment, not merely just the, the, the ramblings and rumblings of the various gods of the peoples. Our hearts melted for the Lord your God. He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Rahab does not merely fear Israel. She fears Israel's God. She knows judgment has come upon Canaan. Israel is merely the sword of the Lord's wrath upon them. In other words, Rahab is like Bunyan's pilgrim. From the pilgrim's progress, you remember the opening scene where pilgrim is standing outside the city of destruction and he's weeping and he's the only one. He's the only citizen of the city who is standing there weeping and he's weeping because he's read in his book that judgment is coming upon the city, that the king of all the earth is coming with fire and brimstone and he knows not the way of escape. So he weeps. That's what Rahab is doing. And that's what you must do. You must tremble before the coming judgment of God. If you would be saved, listen to me very closely. Your sin against God is every bit as loathsome to God as those of the Amorites whom he destroyed before Israel. God's face is set against you in judgment as it was set against the Canaanites. You will not survive the coming judgment. You are devoted to destruction. 
The time is at hand. The hour is nigh. The walls of your fortress will soon crumble to the dust unless you do as Rahab did and cast yourself upon the mercy of the God whom you fear. Rahab rejected her gods, she rejected her godless city, she rejected her godless ways, and she threw in her lot with the people of the one true God. And that's how she became an heir of eternal life. But hearing the gospel of God, believing in the supremacy of God, and trembling before the judgment of God is not enough. You must cast yourself upon the mercy of God. And, and plead for forgiveness and grace and life. In a sense, all of the previous three steps are preparatory to this fourth step. This is the point of conversion. This is where the, the transaction, as it were, takes place. This is where you call upon the name of the Lord and are saved. Verses 12 and 13. Now then... Please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother and my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and that you will deliver our lives from death. Rahab is casting herself upon the mercy of these men and thereby upon the mercy of their God. She's pleading for deliverance from a sure and certain death and destruction. Note how she asks for the men to swear by the Lord and note how she uses the Lord's covenant name. It's in all caps, L-O-R-D. That's Yahweh, the covenant name of God. She says, swear by your covenant God that I'll be saved in the day of judgment. And these men then swear a solemn oath by the Lord's name to save her from death. Verse 14, the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us this land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Now, it's not a perfect analogy. And analogies between the old covenant and the new covenant never are because the new covenant is new and better. It's not a perfect analogy. Because these men make a transaction with Rahab. She has something to offer them, namely secrecy. And they have something to offer her, namely protection. Listen to me very closely. That is not the way we approach God in the new covenant. We have nothing to offer him that he needs. Salvation from his judgment is an act of his free and unmerited grace. All we can do is to cast our souls upon his mercy and to plead for grace. But there is a connection between Rahab's plea to the spies and our plea to God. And it's the name of the Lord that seals the oath, the covenant. Rahab asks them to swear by the name of Yahweh. That they will save her and her family when the day of judgment comes and arrives. So she anchors her hope, right? Hebrews 6, the anchor of our soul. She anchors it in the name of God because there is nothing higher or stronger by which they could swear. When, when, when God's name fails, then their covenant will fail. And that's the same way you approach God today. Your hope is in the name of God, which he has placed upon the new covenant in Christ. 
The men accept her plea and they even offer their lives as surety for their oath. Note that. Even so, I would say that the Lord has sworn by himself. He can't swear by anything higher. So he swore by his own nature, his own character, his own name. He swore by himself. He attached his name to the promise and he has sealed it with his own life. The blood of the son of God stands as surety for the covenant promise that if you will call upon the name of the Lord in faith, you will be saved. Anchor your hope in that. How could God save a sinner like me? He's sworn by his name and he's offered his blood as surety for the covenant. He will save all who call upon him, all who come to him and who cast themselves upon his mercy in Christ. He turns none away. He will not fail to keep his covenant, his oath, his covenant, his blood supports me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then, he then is all my hope and stay. If you will call upon God in faith and cast yourself upon his mercy in Christ, you will be saved. His name and his blood assures it. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Anchor your hope in that promise this morning. Or in the words of Christ, John 6, 40, for this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life, will have, shall have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. You can be saved if you'll come to Christ. The name and the covenant assures it. You'll notice that Rahab asked the spies not only for an oath sealed by the name of the Lord, but she asked them for a sign of the covenant promise. Verse 12, so we read on. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, go into the hills or the pursuers will encounter you and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward, you may go your way. The men said to her, we will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us to swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And you shall gather into your house, your father and your mother and your brothers and all your father's household. Pause. There's an application there. I didn't write into my manuscript, but it's just like Noah and the ark. It's just like the households during the Passover. Gather your family into your home. And hide them under the blood of the lamb. That they too may be saved when the day of judgment comes. That's not the point of this sermon. But this promise is not just for you. It's for you and for your children. And for all whom the Lord our God will call to himself unpause. Behold, when we come into this land, you shall tie your scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and your mother and your brothers and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is within your house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to our oath that you have made us to swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away and they departed. And she tied the scarlet cord in the window. And I might add, she gathered her family into the house. 
Now, pastors throughout the centuries have attempted to use this scarlet cord to tie together the themes of redemption throughout the Bible, making Rahab to represent the church and the spies to represent the judgment of God and the scarlet cord to represent the blood of Christ. And and that may be intended uh, by the Holy Spirit. That may be true, but it seems better to me to understand the scarlet cord as the sign of the covenant just made between Rahab and the spies. And by extension, the sign of the covenant just made between Rahab and the God of Israel. That would mean that for us this morning, the scarlet cord as a sign of the covenant is analogous to baptism, which is the sign of the new covenant. The scarlet cord was to serve as both a sign of the spies promise to Rahab, verse 12, and as a sign from Rahab to the invading Israelites that her house was off limits because she was under the protection of God. Likewise, I would say that baptism functions in this age as a sign of God's oath and covenant to those who call upon his name and cast themselves upon his mercy. And baptism is likewise a sign to the one baptized of God's promise of cleansing from sin and of new life in Christ. It is also a sign from the one being baptized to the covenant community, to the church, that the one being baptized has departed the world, has joined themselves to the body of Christ, and is therefore now an heir of eternal life. So it's a sign to the one being baptized, and it's a sign from the one being baptized to the rest of the church, just like the scarlet cord was a two-way sign for Rahab. It was a sign of their covenant to Rahab, And a sign from Rahab to the covenant community that she, even though she dwelt in Jericho, was now one of them. Therefore, if you would be saved from the judgment to come and become an heir of eternal life, you should receive the sign of God's covenant grace. You should be baptized. This is the way Peter proclaimed the gospel to The Jews in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Luke records, now when they heard this, Peter's sermon, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, right? They, they're trembling for, before the impending judgment of God and they say, brothers, what shall we do? In other words, what should we do to be saved from the coming judgment of God because we've crucified the Lord's Christ? How can we become an heir of eternal life and escape the judgment that is to come? And Peter says to them, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for this promise is for you and for all whom you gather into your house, so to speak for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord, our God calls to himself. Or what about Ananias's words to Paul in Acts twenty two sixteen when Paul was converted and God sent him to Ananias to learn what to do next. Ananias said to Paul, now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Sixth and finally, conversion, however, is just the beginning of a new life of faith and holiness in the midst of God's people. If you would become an heir of eternal life, you must leave behind the world and join yourselves to the people of God, which is the church. You will note that Rahab did not remain in Canaan after the fall of Jericho. 
She did not go join herself to some other pagan people in another city after Jericho fell. And she certainly did not continue to ply her trade. She left it all behind and she joined herself with Israel. So let's conclude this morning by reading the rest of the story. Verse 22. They departed and went into the hills and they remained there three days until the pursuers returned and the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and they passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, truly, notice how different this is from what happened 40 years earlier. Truly, the Lord has given all the land into our hands and also the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. But what of Rahab and her family? I want you to turn over with me to Joshua chapter 6. Verse 22, where after the fall of Jericho, we read these words. But the two men who had spied out the land, to them Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her, as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. Now, Rahab and her family were initially placed outside the camp of Israel because they were as yet ritually unclean. They were pagans. They would need to go through the old covenant purification process. The men would need to receive the sign of circumcision before they could enter into the camp of Israel. But evidently they did because Rahab did not remain outside the camp. If you're still in Joshua 6, look at the next verse, verse 24. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it, only the silver and the gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab, the prostitute in her father's household, and all who belonged to her were saved alive. And look at the next phrase. And she has lived not outside of Israel, she has lived in Israel. Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Rahab became an Israelite and an heir of the promised land. But even that is not all God had in store for her. For the Lord had chosen her for an even greater honor and blessing than belonging to the people of God. For she married an Israelite man from the tribe of Judah, a man named Salmon. And from their marriage, a number of generations later, came a man named Boaz, who likewise, not coincidentally, married a non-Israelite named Ruth. And from their marriage came a man named Obed, who was the father of Jesse, who was the father of David the king. And from the line of David came one named Jesus, who saves his people from their sins. So not only was Rahab saved from the judgment of God, not only was she welcomed into the people of God, not only was she granted an inheritance in the land of God, but she became an ancestor of the Son of God, her own Savior. Joshua 2 stands in Scripture as a testimony that God is merciful to all pagan prostitutes and everyone else who call upon him. He turns none away. 
And so if you find yourself this morning separated from God, enslaved by sin, threatened by imminent judgment, then I invite you, I urge you, I plead with you, and by the authority of God, I command you in the name of Christ to hear the gospel of God, to believe in the supremacy of God, to tremble before the judgment of God, to cast yourself upon the mercy of God, to receive the sign of God in baptism. And thus join yourself to the people of God. And I promise you on the authority of scripture that you will be saved from your sins and the judgment to come by the death, burial and resurrection of the son of God. And you will become an heir of God and of everlasting life in his name. He will not tell you no. He will not turn you away. So come to him.